Jesus, it amazes me, never ceases to amaze me what a pleasure it is to talk about you. And what a joy it is and a comfort and a peace and just an overwhelming sense of of gratitude and gladness that just fills our hearts when we get to stand here and say things about you. Just incredible, Jesus, how that fills us up. And we just proclaim again all that we have said tonight so far about you, about your character and your nature, about who you are, about what you've done, about what you mean to us. We also recognize, Lord Jesus, that you are the Word of God. That as John wrote in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, you were with God in the beginning. And we believe and we know, Lord Jesus, that the Word, you became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen your glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Lord Jesus, as the living Word, we pray that you would speak into our hearts tonight. And then we would be that much more prepared for actually being in your presence. I I was struck tonight, Lord, while we were singing and and worshiping, the thought just came rushing in, what if right now you just called us out of here? And what a wonderful feeling. I sent a a shiver up my spine. And I want to live that way, Lord. Uh, Moment by moment, looking forward to and ready for your very soon appearing. Ready every step that I take, whether I'm out working in the garage or, or studying in the in the office, Lord, or or here with brothers and sisters, or out at lunch, or whatever we're doing, Lord, we pray that we might live in a state of readiness for Your coming. That You would be first and foremost on our minds. That we would seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness. And so tonight we pray, Word of God, speak, speak to our hearts. Speak your word written and bring it alive to us. And may we hear the truth. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, God never fails to answer prayer. It may not come when or how we expect it, but it will come. Rest assured, His answer will come. Now some would say that's a Christian cop-out. You know, it's just your way of dealing with the fact that God hasn't answered your prayer. No. No, that's a prayer of faith. It takes faith to understand that God answers prayer. In His time, in His way, and it's always perfect when He answers and how He answers. That takes faith. And faith is something that unless you have it, you don't get it. Until you get it, you don't get it. But once you get it, you've got it. You ought to write that down. That was profound. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) You don't get it until you get it, but once you get it, you've got it. (laughs) Wow, that'll preach, Brian. Anyway, the prayer of faith goes something like this. As for me, my prayer is to you, Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of Your loving kindness, answer me with Your saving truth. That's Psalm 69.13, the prayer of faith. A psalm written to express perhaps the most faithful of people. A heart cry of absolute faith. Answer me, Lord, in the acceptable time. When is the acceptable time? It's when God says it is. Answer me, Lord, in the way that you choose to answer me. Not in the way that I think I should be answered, but your way, Lord. 
And the faithful person prays and waits. And prays and waits, knowing that at an acceptable time, in the Lord's time, your prayer will be heard, it will be answered. It takes faith to know that. Tonight's study, Isaiah 65, you need to frame this, understand this. Isaiah 65 is an answer to prayer. The whole chapter is an answer to prayer. Isaiah 64 ends with a gut-wrenching plea for mercy. We saw that last week. Isaiah is speaking and he says in verse 12 of Isaiah 64, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? And if you go all the way back to write about the 7th verse of Isaiah 63 and run it all the way through Isaiah 64, it's just this outpouring of Isaiah's heart and his spirit in this pleading cry for mercy. A pleading cry that goes beyond his days, by the way. For Isaiah wasn't asking, wasn't pleading for the generation of his day, though they were a mess and he knew it. Isaiah was prayerfully pleading with a voice of the future. In fact, if you look at verse 11 of chapter 64, as we read last week, Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you, past tense, has been burned by fire, past tense, and all our precious things have become, past tense, a ruin. Well, when Isaiah prayed that prayer, wrote that down, the temple was standing. It was not even singed. It wasn't even smoldering. It was standing strong and firm. There was no ruin. The holy things were still in the temple. The kings were on their thrones. Oh, the people were rebellious to be sure, but but Jerusalem stood. And yet Isaiah cries out with these, these eyes, and it almost makes you wonder, did Isaiah actually see the temple burning? And the answer is not with eyes of flesh. He would be dead and buried a hundred years before the temple was burned. A hundred years before Babylon came in. Perhaps even a little more than that. But by the Holy Spirit of the living Christ, Isaiah saw these things. And that's one of the things that makes Isaiah so remarkable as a prophet. No more remarkable than any prophet, except for the fact that Isaiah spoke what was to come in short order. And people could, a hundred years down the line, a hundred and fifty years down the line, refer back to the prophecies of Isaiah, see what's happening in the immediate day and say, he's legit. What he said came to pass. What he prophesied happened exactly as he said it would. And God fills the prophecies of Isaiah with those immediate answers and responses within a a century or so. So that we would see the long-term prophecies of Isaiah and believe that just as the short-term prophecies were fulfilled, so the long-term ones will be as well. What long-term ones? Isaiah 7.14 He shall be called Emmanuel. A child will be given to you. Isaiah 9, verse 6 A son will be given to you. Speaking of the birth of Jesus and other passages in Isaiah that indicate that marvelous birth so that we could know If his prophecies are fulfilled 100 years down the line, guess what? 750 years down the line, they'll be fulfilled as well. Isaiah 53. He was pierced through for our transgressions. And by his scourging, we are healed. And he spoke those words, and they were profoundly true. He had the eyes of the future. And as he writes there in verse 11, Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praise you has been burned by fire and all our precious things have become a ruin. You have to ask, 
the question, which temple did Isaiah see burning? Because more than one burned down. There was the first temple of Solomon that burned down in 586 B.C. You history and Bible students know that. There was the second temple built when uh, Zerubbabel and, and Joshua, when they came back to Jerusalem, the second temple that was built and then added on to and retrofitted and expanded to, to greatness and architectural glory by Herod. And that temple burned down in 70 A.D. So which one was it? What did Isaiah see burning? Now because of the context, people often say, commentators say, well, he saw, he saw the temple burning as Babylon destroyed it. And that's, that's what the threat is. And yet the temple burned down in 70 A.D. as well, raised to the ground by the Romans. But I wonder, did Isaiah perhaps see even further ahead? Did he perhaps look beyond the first temple burning, the second temple burning, to perhaps the third temple? What third? There's never been a third temple. There will be. In fact, there will be a fourth temple. Did you know that? There will be a third temple in the time of tribulation. The Bible talks very specifically about it. There has to be because as Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as Daniel refers to in Daniel chapter 9, Antichrist is going to set himself up as God in the temple. There's going to have to be a temple there. The third temple. What we could call the tribulation temple. There will be a fourth temple, we know for sure, because Zechariah, among others, says Messiah is going to come along and he's going to build it. And it will stand and he will rule and reign from there in the millennial kingdom, the millennial temple, fourth temple. Will there be a fifth? No. Because the Father and the Lamb are the temple further out, which we're going to get there tonight. Which is why I said, fasten your Bible belts. We're going somewhere. Which temple did he see burning? I believe, personally, I can't absolutely say for certain, this is my opinion, but I believe that the prophet in Isaiah 65, or in Isaiah 64, when he's praying this plea of mercy, is speaking for a people who would witness the burning of the house of the Lord, but not the first one, not the second one, the third one. A people who would be under such distress as has never been known by the people of Israel. The righteous remnant of Israel in those days of tribulation. More than the voice of the exiles who saw Babylon burn it down. More than the voice of the diaspora who saw Rome burn it down. I believe Isaiah cries out with the voice of the righteous remnant of Israel in the coming days of their tribulation. Why? Because Isaiah 65 is God's answer to the prayerful plea of Isaiah 64. And in Isaiah 65, we see both the when and the how of God's answer. When He answers and how He answers, and they are both future. He answers Isaiah, not with the immediacy of Babylon within a century, and not with that of Rome 700 plus years later. He answers Isaiah with an answer that takes us all the way out to the future, a time yet future from us here tonight. A greater vision. He points to a time immediately after the tribulation we've called and understand to be the millennial kingdom. So understand that Isaiah Isaiah 65 is the Lord's perfectly timed answer to Isaiah 64. Let's look at it. As we get into it, we need to clarify the first two verses with a biblical distinction. I'll give you kind of an outline. And number one is a biblical distinction. We need to make a biblical distinction between verses 1 and 2. Here we go. I permitted myself to be sought 
by those who did not ask for me. God responds. He's responding to Isaiah's plea. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, or here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. A biblical distinction. Who is God talking to in verses 1 and 2? Now, it's predictable, but the Jewish commentators say that God is speaking to Israel in verses 1 and 2. Christian commentators say God is speaking to the church in verse 1 and Israel in verse 2. And when I first read that, I went, ah, those replacement theologians. But you know what? The more I looked at it, the more I think in this case they are correct. God is speaking to Gentiles in verse 1 and Jews in verse 2. Now you all understand my sensitivity to any sort of replacement theology. I do not accept, nor do I believe Scripture preaches, that the church replaces Israel and has now taken up their position as Israel of God. Not so. And there's countless Scripture that can support and back that up. But in this case, there is more than enough sound evidence to believe that verse 1 is in fact God's reference to Gentiles, while verse 2, God turns to the Jews. Verse 2 and following. Why is that? Look at verse 1 again. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call upon my name. Nation. There's your first clue. The word is goy. You Bible students know this. Goy or goyim is Gentiles. Jews today will use behind your back the word goy to make fun of you. Because goy to a Jewish person is kind of a put down. Oh, you're a non-Jew. You're a goy. That's the word here. The word goy translated nations or goyim is nations. Goy is nation, singular. That word most of the time it's used in Scripture refers to Gentiles. And so we have this Gentile reference right here in verse 1 to a nation which did not call upon my name, to Gentiles who didn't know me, who didn't follow me like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but another people, a different group, the Gentiles, the Goy. Verse 2, he goes on and says, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. Not nation now, he says to a people. The word is Am in the Hebrew, A-M. And this word Am is most often used of Israel. He says, my people. Ani Am. The people. Those belonging to me. He often refers to Israel as people and the Gentiles as the nations, as a separate group. And this is the first indicator of the when of God's response to Isaiah. It goes to a point later than the crucifixion of Christ. Later than the resurrection and ascension of Christ. He moves to a point at least at least to the beginning of the church age. If, if this is in fact true that he's talking about, I was found by those who did not seek me, by another nation, but these people, my people Israel, they've rebelled against me. So I've gone outside. I've gone to... Another, Isaiah 65 verse 1 is hinting at the very mystery of salvation. The mystery of salvation that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1 verses 9 through 13. Jot it down, read it on your own time. 
This is my time. Colossians, it's our time. It's really our time, but don't waste our time. Okay. Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 28. Paul talks about this mysterion in the Greek. The mystery of our salvation. The prophets like Isaiah long to understand. Sought after and diligently sought to get. When is this going to happen? When is it going to take place? Verse 1, I believe God is hinting at that, talking about it. But aside from a couple of Hebrew words, Rick, you can always pull out those Hebrew words. And by the way, I happen to know, and perhaps you do, that the words can be interchangeable. Sometimes goy is actually used for Israel. Israel is called a nation, a goy. Sometimes the nations are called a people, um. Now most often it's the other way around, but it can be that way. So how can we really know for certain that God is referring to Gentiles in verse 1? I'll tell you how. And thank you for asking. We go to God's own commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures. What is God's commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures? The New Testament. Just as the Old Testament is commentary on the New Testament, the New Testament is commentary on the Old Testament. Let the Bible speak to itself. So we're going to do that right now. Turn over to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10. In verse 19. And remember, we're seeking to know for sure, is verse 1 speaking to Gentiles while verse 2 is speaking to Jews? Is that in fact the case? Romans chapter 10. We'll begin at about verse 19. Although Paul is right in the middle of his biblical theology for God's plan for Israel, paralleling God's plan for the church. Romans 9, 10, and 11, the most critical section of Paul's teaching, if you want to understand Israel's place and the church's place as two separate plans that God is running in parallel. Okay, So we're in the middle of that, but in verse 19, Paul says, But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? And the way the question is phrased in the Greek assumes a yes answer. Yes, they knew. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation, without understanding, will I anger you. He quotes Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. I'm going to make you jealous by the goy, the Gentiles. And Paul's going to expound on this theme in just a moment. But he goes on then, and in verse 20 says, And Isaiah is very bold, and says, Isaiah 65 verse 1, I was found by those who did not seek me, I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Who are those who did not seek me? Gentiles. Gentiles, that's the point Paul is making. Verse 21 But as for Israel, he says, and he quotes verse 2, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Paul understood, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that Isaiah 65 verse 1 was for the church. Isaiah 65 verse 2 is for Israel. And so if Paul's going to say that, I'm not going to argue the point. But read on what Paul says following that. I say then, chapter 11 verse 1, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be! For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Skip down to verse 5. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Paul says there's a remnant of Israel. I believe the remnant Paul was referring to right there was already within the church. Okay, Jews like Paul himself who were believers in Jesus Christ, who were that saved remnant. But that's not where Paul stops. Skip further down to verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, that is the transgression of Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, the Jews, jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, note this, how much more will their fulfillment be? How much more glorious is this going to be when Israel, as Israel, comes around to the realization that Jesus Christ is Messiah? Paul says it's going to happen. You can count on it. So all Israel... Down in verse 20 later. (laughs) Where is it? Verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God is saying, my covenant. It's not their covenant. They've shown they can't keep the covenant. But I'm keeping mine. And I'm going to save the righteous remnant of Israel. The Gospel came first to Israel. Right? We understand that. To the Jew first. It was rejected. It went out to the Gentiles. It was accepted. But finally, it will come again to save the remnant of Israel. And that's the beginning of God's answer to Isaiah's plea for mercy. I had to turn to another people because you all rejected what I brought to you. But he doesn't end there. Verse 2 and going on, back in Isaiah 65 now. Speaking to Israel, once we've made a biblical distinction, speaking to Israel, he says, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. So glad I never do that. A people who continually provoke me face to face or provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say, keep yourself, do not come near me, I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me. I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom both their iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord, because they have burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. Second thing to note here, a righteous decree. A righteous decree. God is never arbitrary in His judgments. Unlike Allah of Muslim faith, there is no capriciousness with God. It's not, hey, you're okay, you're saved today. Tomorrow you may not be. I may change my mind. No, God is absolutely right and just and perfect in His judgment. And He outlines several issues with His people Israel to explain to them why Isaiah is having to cry out for mercy in the first place. Why is the temple burning down twice? 
Why are my people carried off into captivity, dispersed into the world? Why so much turmoil and horror in the lives of the Jewish people? And God says, this wasn't just you know me being upset. There is reason to this judgment. And here the reasons are, number one, rebellion. You've rebelled against me. Verse 2, he talks about that. I've held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. Talk about biting the hand that feeds you. God says, I stretch my hand out to you, lovingly, outstretched. But at best, his hand was ignored by Israel. At worst, it was slapped away. I did that to Anna Marie the other day. Just one of those moments, you know, I was tired, I was a little grumpy. And Honorie has this thing that she likes to do. She likes to come up and just bop me on the head. You know, sometimes it gets old. And she comes up to me, and I saw her hand going up for a good daddy bop, you know, and I just went, whap! You know, I caught it coming down. She's like, oh, you hurt me. And I said, you were about to hurt me. Put it in the context. God says, Israel, I want to deliver you. Slap. We don't want it. We're fine, thanks. We don't want to have anything to do with you. Rebellion. How, how could they do that? I sat and pondered this for a few minutes this week. In fact, I pondered it for longer than that because the first three and a half hours of my study on, on, on Tuesday, I think Glenn knows this, blanked out on my computer and I got to start over. That was fun. Apparently God figured I didn't understand it well enough, so we went at it again. But I was thinking about this. How could Israel slap away the loving hand of God? Because the rebellious mind tends to think that it knows best. I am at the height of my rebellion when I think I know better than God knows better for my life. When I am praying, Lord, you need to answer my prayer my way now because I understand what I'm facing here. You just need to do what I tell you. Rebellion. And that's where Israel was. Jesus defined the problem, clearly. He's approaching the city of Jerusalem at the end of His three years of ministry, at the beginning of His very last week before He would be crucified and resurrected. And He comes to Jerusalem. The temple is in sight. The town, the city, is just bustling with activity for the Passover week. And as He approaches it, Luke tells us He wept. Matthew tells us what he said, Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, the outstretched hand. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Rebellion. You were unwilling. The hand was there. Salvation was offered. Deliverance was available. Grace proffered by the Lord. But you didn't want it. And so Jesus said, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And within 30, 35 years, the second temple burned to the ground. God's outstretched hands slapped away by rebellious hearts. No wonder He righteously decreed destruction, captivity, dispersion, and difficulty for the Jewish people. But that's not all. Provocation. Not only were they rebellious, and in rebellion, they, were, they, were, they provoked God. Verses 3 and 4, he talks about how, how they provoked Him, and how did He do it? How did they do it? Through offering sacrifices in gardens, and burning incense on bricks, and sitting among graves, and spending the night in secret places, and eating pig's flesh, and, and the broth of unclean meat in their pots. All of that, all of that has to do with what we know 
to be Canaanite cults and Semitic rituals and pagan idolatry that was prevalent in the land. And we even know just historically what was going on. We have archaeological artifacts that show these very types of sacrifices and the residual or the remnant of that kind of stuff going on. And God calls it out. Not only did you rebel against me, but you provoked my anger by offering up sacrifice to other gods. And you were doing this all over the place. You went from your diet to darkness to demonic worship. (laughs) And all of this is happening as a provoking of the Lord. Now you want some prophetic amazement here. Keep your finger there and go back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, we have what is called the Song of Moses, written toward the end of his life. And it is a prophecy, and it's a remarkable prophecy, because 750 years before Isaiah, who then was 750 years before Christ, Moses sings this song, but it sounds like a history lesson, not a prophecy that would take place later. Deuteronomy 32, the beginning of verse 16, Moses sings, They made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of His sons and His daughters." And so he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation. Sons in whom there is no faithfulness, they have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. By the way, that's the Gentiles. We're the foolish nation. Hey, that's fine. Call me whatever you want. I'm saved. (laughs) Out of my foolishness by the wisdom of Christ. But in this section, you flip back now to to Isaiah. Moses sings exactly what they would do. And and how interesting. Can you imagine being there with Moses as he's singing this song? And you're going, do you you know anyone in, in the camp here who's doing this? What's he talking about? We're not idol worshipers. We're not worshiping demons or other gods. We're committed to you, God. And Moses, by the prophetic power of the Holy Spirit, is saying, no, this is exactly where the people of Israel are headed. This is what they're going to do. They will provoke God. Was God right to judge Israel for rebelling against Him and provoking Him? Well, He doesn't stop there. He gives more of this righteous decree. He talks about their rejection. Verse 5 who say, keep to yourself and do not come near me, for I am holier than you. Well, I read that and went, wait a minute, wait a minute, Lord. When did the Israelites, for all of their rebellion, when did they ever say they were holier than you were? Matthew 9, verse 10. It happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and His disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to His disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? In other words, we don't. We are the holy leaders of Israel. We wouldn't stoop to such lowliness. One of the problems the leadership of Israel had with Jesus is He hung out with the common people. His holiness was real and genuine, not the facade of the Pharisees. The Pharisees truly believed that they were holier than thou. 
holier than God in the flesh. And so God calls it out exactly as it would happen. They look with disdain at Jesus for associating with lowlifes like us. Although it was David who originally wrote in Psalm 8 verse 4, What is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you care for him. Who are we that you would visit us, David says. And so when Jesus came, He just did exactly what God has always done, and that is, He associated with lowly man. As we were praying and thanking Jesus for His presence and talking to Him tonight, aren't you thankful that He associates with us? That He chooses to be where we are? That He hangs out with lowly man? Now that was beneath the dignity of the scribes and Pharisees because they were holier than God. Or so they thought. They offered up the required sacrifices, but they offered up those sacrifices with arrogance. Now listen, there's a reason I mention the sacrifices. For the latter part of verse 5, these are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. The sacrifices were for the purpose of a sweet aroma to the Lord, not a burning stink. But the sweet aroma, we find out, truly isn't the smoke coming off of the flesh that's burning in the fire. The sweet aroma to God was the prayers of the people. The incense offered in the holy place. That incense that would go up. And God loved to smell faithfulness. And and to smell love. And to smell praise and worship from His people. But what the Pharisees and Jewish leaders were offering up stunk to high heaven. Literally. Take care that you don't go there. Don't consider yourself holier than thou. We have such a fine line that we walk. As believers in Christ, determined to live lives that are righteous, but we do not listen. We do not have the right to judge, especially non-believing people. All they need is grace. And even when it comes time for judgment to happen in the household of God, even when it is time for us, one to another, to come to a brother or sister and say, you know, there's something you're doing here that you ought not to be doing, we better walk with the greatest of compassion and care and never ever approach a brother or sister in Christ with the attitude that, you know, Les, if you were just half the man that I am in Jesus... then perhaps this ministry would go somewhere. (laughs) Can you imagine? But we have that arrogance, don't we, sometimes? Don't we look at other Christians and go, I saw him coming out of the brown lantern. I wouldn't eat there. Do you know what kind of movies... (laughs) you know what kind of movies she watches? I wouldn't watch those. Well, goody for you, Mr. Holier Than Thou. (laughs) You know what pleases God? You know what aroma He loves to smell? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We are not holier than God. We are humbled by His holiness. So Israel displays rebellion, provocation, rejection, and to cap it all off, God says, in case you still think that you don't justly deserve all the punishment and discipline that I have sent your way, every rebellious action, every provocative deed, every rejecting behavior is detailed for me right here. What are you talking about? His deposition, you could call it. In verse 6 he says, Behold, it is written before me. You want to argue the case? 
You want to call me unfair for my judgments on you, my people of Israel? Well, let's look at the books. Let's look at what you've really done. Let me ask you all, do you remember every sin you've ever committed? Do you remember every wrongdoing? Do you? You know what? I don't. I don't at all. I wish I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> some of us are better at that at remembering than others. I look back on my life and I know there's some dirty, bad stuff back there. I just don't remember because I'm a pretty good guy. At least I want to believe I am. God has precise, detailed records of every sin ever committed by every person. And we are not going to stand before Him and go, I'm all right. What do you got there in that book, God? What you got written there? Boy, there's a lot under my name. It's the deal. The book of deeds is what I'm talking about. Trust the Lord. You do not want to see the paperwork on your life. None of us want to recall. Even, even those of us who believe, I remember every sin I've ever committed. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. There is so much back there that is dark and ugly and you have forgotten about it. We've kind of set it aside. We've said, thank you for forgiveness and we've moved on. But you know what? If we open the book of the deeds of every one of our lives, the pages are covered. You don't want to open that book. You don't want the deposition read. Revelation 20, verse 12 tells us what happens. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, not the book, but the books, according to their deeds. Okay, that's the great throne judgment. I'll refer to it again a little bit later. That's the great throne judgment happens after the millennial kingdom. When all of the dead who didn't go into the kingdom, who didn't rule and reign and serve with Jesus in the kingdom, all the dead are called up to do exactly what they always wanted to do, to prove that they are worth heaven. And the books of deeds are open, and the book of life is opened. But their judgment comes by the books of deeds. Because they chose not to have their name written in the book of life. If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, guess what? Every sin you've ever committed, there's no record of it. It's gone. The pages in the book of deeds that have your name on it and all your sins ripped out, torn up, burned, thrown away, they don't exist anymore. Because your name is in the Lamb's book of life. God starts there. He looks at Jim and he goes, Hutchinson, Lamb's book of life. No, no, put the deeds away. We don't need them. He's here. It's good to go. But there are many people who are going to say, no, no, I, I, why was I treated this way? Israel might say in this chapter. Show me. I've lived a good life. All right? Page 1. Long about page 72, I think people might be getting the picture. And it's interesting to me, by the way, there is only one book of life and there are many books of deeds. Why is that? Jesus said in Matthew 7.13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. So we need a lot of books for that. But he says the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it and their names are just written in one book. The Lamb's Book of Life. How do I get my name in that book? Believe in Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Walk with Jesus in a real, 
authentic, actual relationship, no religious games, just love Jesus and live for Him. The beauty of the Lamb's book is it contains the names of those who have accepted His grace to remove their filthy rags of self-righteousness. Now we come to the third section of this. A gracious deliverance. For He calls out this decree. Here, Israel, is why you've had so much judgment. Here's the deal. But in spite of all that, the outstretched hand of God slapped away by Israel comes right back to His people again. Beginning in verse 8, a gracious deliverance. Thus says the Lord. This is a beautiful picture. As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for there is benefit, or literally blessing, barakah, there's blessing in it. So I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all, or literally, in order not to destroy the whole of them. Verse 8 gives a beautiful picture. It's very descriptive. You need to imagine a vine dresser who's going through and he's picking out clusters of grapes and they're, they're getting squashed and used and set aside, uh, getting used for the, for the new wine. And he picks up a cluster and it's smashed and it's dried out and it's crumpled and he's about to throw it away and someone says, wait, 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 look in the middle, look! And he looks down and notices inside that terrible cluster, there are some fresh grapes. There's still some there. The righteous remnant of Israel is still there. In spite of all the rebellion, in spite of everything that God has just decreed and delineated and lined up for us to see and for Israel to understand, though the outside looks brown and shriveled and dead, inside there are still some good grapes. There are still some who are faithful, who believe God for His promises, and that's His description of the faithful remnant blessing in the broken cluster. Goodness in the midst of all this death. Staying with this picture, Isaiah says in verse 9, I will bring forth offspring, literally seed. I wish they had just left it the way it was. I will bring forth seed from Jacob. Take out this cluster of grapes and it's messed up and mangled, but inside there's good grapes and inside the good grapes there's good seed and I'm going to bring that seed along. I'm carrying it forward. The word is Zira in the Hebrew. I will bring forth seed from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it, and my servants will dwell there. Where is he going to bring this seed from? From out of that used up, broken cluster. The seed of Jacob. This unconditional promise of the remnant inheriting the land is, is based clearly not on Israel keeping their covenant, but on a God of mercy keeping His. I read this, you know, the question that popped into my mind was, is there any doubt about Israel's presence or place in the promised kingdom? If you ever had doubt before, you read that verse, I will bring forth seed from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Those are not Gentiles, folks. Those are Jewish people who will be saved in the kingdom that's to come. Because God has determined He's going to do it. It's amazing. Verse 10. Sharon will be a pasture land for the flocks. And the valley of Achor, a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. Now we've talked about this in a previous study. The Sharon Valley runs from Haifa in the north all the way down to Jaffa, Jaffa in the south of Israel. Not the south of Israel, but about midway down. And that whole section up and down the coast and all the way out to Mount Carmel is called the Sharon Valley. It is one of the most fertile places on planet Earth. Incredibly rich soil. It produces uh, vegetables and fruits and flowers of all kinds. It's just an amazing place on Earth. 
And so he says the Sharon Valley, yeah, it'll be a pasture land. You're not going to be living there. Sharon Valley already is a pasture land right now. That promise is half fulfilled. You go visit Israel today and the Sharon Valley is stunning. It's beautiful. What about the Valley of Accor? Now that's interesting. The Valley of Accor. Hosea prophesies, chapter 2, verse 15, I will give her vineyards from there and the Valley of Accor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. The Valley of Accor is going to be a doorway of hope. So based on Isaiah and based on Hosea, you'd have to say, well, the Valley of Accor, that's a good thing. You might be surprised to find where it got its name. It takes its name from a man. Accor means trouble. The Valley of Trouble. The man it takes its name from is a guy by the name of Achan. Achan, whose name means troubler. They should have known right up front. This guy, can you imagine a mom naming her newborn? We need a name for him. Let's call him Troubler. <laughs> hey, Troubler, time to come in for dinner. Troubler. Good night, Troubler. You know, in the morning, time to get out of bed. Troubler. That was Achan's name. The one who would trouble. And he brought trouble to Israel. Remember the story? Joshua chapter 7. The people had gone in and conquered Jericho. Well, they hadn't. God had. They just marched around it seven times. city falls. They conquer it. And God says, here's the one rule. You will not take any spoils from this battle. You'll leave it. Achan looks around, grabs up some spoils, takes it, buries it under his tent, figures he'll keep it for later, you know, and he can get something out of it. His, his inheritance, you know, his riches. God knew no one else did, and all of a sudden there was all kinds of plague happening in Israel among the people in the camp. Joshua is beside himself. What is going on? Takes it to the Lord. The Lord says, you have sin in the camp. And they go through tent by tent until they discover Achan has stuff buried there. We could say that Israel is Achan over the whole thing. Oh, my Achan breaking heart. How does the Valley of Trouble, this whole place from then on out was called the Valley of Trouble because of Achan. Called it the Valley of Accor. How does the Valley of Trouble become a resting place, a doorway of hope? One way, grace. By grace. I'm going to make the Sharon Valley a pasture land and I'm going to make the Valley of Trouble a resting place. How does our trouble get translated or transferred into rest? By the grace of God. If we go about our lives by the works of man, we will always be troubled. But if we accept the grace of God, if we live by His grace and His mercy, and if we act by His grace and His mercy, what would have been the valley of trouble is for us a door of hope. It is the valley of rest. And that's what He invites us to.